Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. And welcome to the back of the range. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 181. I'm back home, well-rested from an incredible experience at the 2021 Jones Cup Invitational. From top to bottom, from Mr. Jones and Mr. Stahl, the founding fathers of the Jones Cup, to the director of golf, John Wade, who was my guest on episode 180, Charlie Killian, the entire professional staff, Matthew Heckel, my partner in crime, handling all of the social media content we created, dozens of volunteers, the rules officials from the Georgia State Golf Association, spotters on every hole, food and beverage, the housekeeping staff that took such good care of me while I was on site. Just an incredible experience. First class all the way around, already planning to return in 2022. Finally, what can I say about the players? They braved the elements. They, uh, along with myself, learned firsthand about the traditional Jones Cup weather patterns. A couple of beautiful days with an absolutely horrid day of rain and wind mixed in. But I saw some phenomenal golf, an epic battle down the stretch on the back nine. You had Alex Fitzpatrick, Spencer Ralston, and Ludwig Aberg in the final round. I mean, Alex Fitzpatrick of Wake Forest, he's a former Walker Cupper. Pretty sure he's a lock to be on the team in 2021. Spencer Ralston, just a stalwart of University of Georgia. And then Aberg, the guy from Sweden who's at Texas Tech that goes on to win the tournament. And then in the penultimate group, you have Cole Hammer, Davis Thompson, and David Ford. Hammer, we know about his credentials. Davis Thompson's the number two ranked amateur in the world. And David Ford really looks like a kid that's going to make an impact at UNC Chapel Hill. Ultimately, Aberg pulled out a one-shot victory by making birdie on the final hole. What else can you ask for in any sort of golf tournament? Now, I had a chance to speak with him after the round, actually an exclusive interview inside the clubhouse of Ocean Forest Golf Club. So I'll put the link to that interview. It's over there on the Jones Cup Invitational Instagram page. Remember last week, told you to follow that. Keep following it because they're going to be pumping out content for weeks and months to come. But don't worry, you are going to get a full episode here at the back of the range featuring Ludwig Aberg very soon. As I said, rising star at Texas Tech all the way from Sweden. We'll talk about Sweden, Lubbock, Texas, (laughs) how those two are related. He's already won two professional tournaments in Europe. The recent Wagger rankings came out. He is now the 10th ranked amateur in the world. Cannot wait to record that episode. It's going to be a fun one. As I mentioned previously, the Jones Cup had massive Walker Cup ramifications. Some players went up in the rankings and some ultimately went down. The top three Americans after the latest Wagger rankings were posted on February 10th have been granted spots on the U.S. team. No surprise in seeing Davis Thompson from Georgia and Ricky Castillo from Florida getting two of those spots. DT was one shot away from getting into a playoff and possibly going back-to-back of the Jones Cup. He is definitely on form. Castillo did not play the Jones Cup, but the third spot went to John Pock from FSU. He is back on the U.S. Walker Cup team. As you may remember, he went undefeated for the U.S. side in 2019. Three big points in Hoylake for Captain Crosby. So along with Tyler Strafacci, the U.S. amateur champion, that's four spots on the team that are decided. Only six remain. 
And while I don't know specifically when the announcement for the full team will be made, I don't think we're going to be waiting very long. Walker Cup at Seminole is the first week of May. Hope you all are as excited for that as I am. Before I forget, make sure you're following along on Instagram, the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. You know I have plenty of hats and towels for sale. The face masks were a big hit at the Jones Cup. It's easy to find every single episode here. Go to the website, thebackoftherange.com. That will give you links to anything you need, hats, shirts, you name it. Before we get to this week's guest, I was going to make a special announcement. And now, unfortunately, due to very poor weather heading to the Houston area, it's, uh, it's just an announcement. I was planning on attending the University of Houston's All-America Collegiate Tournament this upcoming weekend in Humble, Texas. It's going to be held at the Golf Club of Houston. Well, unfortunately, due to some challenging weather heading into that area, I won't be heading there. Now, at this time, this episode is being released on Thursday morning, February 11th. The tournament is still on. But, you know, we thought about it. Collegiate players wearing parkas and ski masks might not photograph very well. And hey, let's face it, I'm a candy-ass Floridian, and I can't handle all this cold. All right? There. I said it. So, you'll hear at the end of this episode that I'm going to be in Houston for the tournament. Unfortunately, that's not the case. But rest assured, I'll be covering another collegiate tournament very soon. Something is already in the works. And, you know, there are other tournaments in the state of Texas. And not just B tournaments, A tournaments. And how did I get hooked up with Houston in the first place? Well, that brings us to this week's guest. My guest on this episode is Jonathan Dismuke, Director of Golf, Men's Golf Coach at the University of Houston. His story and his path to Houston is remarkable. How does a kid that grew up in Calhoun City, Mississippi, on a nine-hole golf course, make his way to Auburn as a player, Texas A&M as a national championship winning assistant coach, and then finally to Houston to lead the most storied collegiate golf program in history? Well, we're going to find out right now. Coach, you're here at the back of the range. How are you? Ben, thanks for having me on. I'm doing great. Well, I'm glad that you are. Uh, we could find some time to, to talk a little college golf, especially at a place like University of Houston. We will definitely get into the history of collegiate golf at, at that fine institution because you are at the uh, at the, the the top of the uh, mountain as far as national championships go. But um, I have to ask you before we get into your start in the game, let's talk a little bit about today where we're basically seeing that collegiate golf is televised as we're recording this they're playing out in in california in the uh, in the southwestern invitational did you ever think you'd see a day where regular collegiate events are being televised like this you know ben it, it's a um it, it's obviously special i mean we we've you know there's been a lot of coaches that have worked really hard on um trying to promote the game and and uh getting us to this point and um you know the golf channel has been working with us, obviously, with starting with the NCAA championship and then having the East Lake East Lake Cup, and then now this event on TV. I mean, it's it's a uh, it's it's tremendous. I love the fact that it's televised, and but the only thing about this event, it's not their fault, obviously, and kudos, like you said, to the Golf Channel for televising it. But man, it is cold and it's blowing out there, and the scores are for the most part over par. There's a couple people that are going going under par but for the most part it's just brutal out there and i wish like 
Like there's a tournament, I believe, in in um in Timaquana where these guys are going super low. I want to see that stuff televised. Off the top of your head, what's one tournament that would really fit into that nice pocket of showing just how good these collegiate golfers are and just would show a birdie fest? To your best recollection, can you think back to a tournament that would really showcase just, I mean, mid-60s all over the place? Yeah, I mean, the quality of golf, I mean, obviously, I mean, that's a great point that you brought that up because, you know, there's a lot of people that their first introduction to college golf will be this and and uh, even some some to the national championship to to some degree. I mean, yeah. we, we play extremely di- difficult venues. I mean, blessings was obviously very difficult. Concession, you know, its nickname is concussion. Uh, <laughs> Carson so, Creek. Uh, yeah. Carson Creek. I mean, we're not playing pitching pots, right. uh, you know. And and um, you know, the the golf course they're playing down in Florida right now uh, for for the event that you mentioned, Tim McQuana, I think it's the name of it. I've been on that golf course a long time ago, and it's it's not what I would consider a pitching putt. But you no. look at these the scoring there, and it, it is, you know, you know they they are heading south of south uh, when it when it comes to the scoring, and uh, you know, but obviously there's there's certain events that lend themselves to that. You know, Maui, uh, we played um, Hawaii's event out in Maui uh, where they used to have this, the Champions Tour Skins game. It's an awesome golf course. It's extremely scenic. Guys, you know, you know, make a ton of birdies there. It usually takes 30-some-odd under to win. Um, as far as getting the scenery right, as far as televising um, golf at a, you know, a, a, at an interesting time, you know, I think that event would, would, would be uh, well-received for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I just don't like seeing the guys struggling. Uh, you know, it's kind of a novelty when the pros get beaten up. And, you know, that's, you know, we that's fine seeing them get the you know crap mm-hmm. kicked out of it like a u.s open or an open championship but i i want to see these guys just you know shooting 65s and just have people say wow okay they are they really are that good um, yeah no there's no doubt yeah. there's no doubt well at, at this point in our conversation it's early but a lot of my listeners are probably picking up the fact that you have a slight accent so uh when did you come over from the uk to be the uh to be the head coach at houston no, I say uh, that, that, that's funny. Yeah, um, I uh, I uh, was born uh, in the middle of nowhere in Mississippi and uh, got into golf haphazardly. But uh, you know, golf's taken me taking me a lot of different places from from the backwoods of Mississippi to Auburn University to you know around the country and some interesting places in the world playing professional golf. And then uh, I decided to get in coaching and, and uh, spent a couple of years at Ole Miss, uh, spent a great year at Texas A&M in, in 08 and 09 and won the national championship. And then uh, about a week after getting back, um, you know, from, from the national championship, I got a call from uh, University of Houston and uh, we were able to come to agreement by the end of that summer. And, um, I've been here since 2009. So middle of nowhere, Mississippi, let's be a little more specific. We're talking about Calhoun. It's basically halfway between Jackson, Mississippi and Memphis, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. But you're right about a population of 15,000. How do you get into the game of golf in Calhoun, Mississippi? Yeah, you, you, you missed the uh, comma there. It's, uh, it's about 1,500. Uh, oh, oh, okay. Well, no, I, no, I so, think that's right. Yeah. Well, there's Calhoun County and then Calhoun yeah. City. So is it which yeah. which is which here? Yeah, I grew up in, in Calhoun City, okay. uh, which uh, is a uh, metropolis by some standards. Uh, you know, so it, it – um, 
<laughs> definitely an interesting place to grow up. Okay. Uh, you know, it, it was uh, it was primarily a farm community, not a lot of golf. I mean, there was a nine hole golf course, um, you know, with no with no driving range, no real practice facilities. I didn't really start playing golf until I was like fourteen. Um, so I kind of came to the game late. Uh, I played a bunch of other sports, but um, you know, uh, just kind of got the golf bug. I had a, a great group of guys that I played golf with, all older guys, but uh, they were, you know, very competitive. They played golf all the time, and you were always playing for something. So that's, you had the, best way, that's the best way, isn't it? When, when you just yeah. got, and I'm guessing none of them are relatives at all. It's just like these. Just they're basically just you know, in their fifties and I'm guessing this is all a guess, but I'm guessing they're like in their forties, fifties and sixties. And they just basically adopt you and teach you how to basically play like a man when you're what, you know, like you said, 14 years old at a golf course. It was a great learning tool for me and a great educator for me. Um, you know, starting out in the game, it wasn't like we were playing for a lot of money, no. but it, and it was, it was enough to keep your interest enough to, um, for you to have to show up and, and, and that's, that's a, a, a great recipe and a great environment, uh, for, for development. You played your collegiate golf at, at Auburn. And as you said, you know, get into the game rather late, but you, you know, win a couple of Mississippi state championships and, and, you know, win a Greystone invitational. I mean, you had a really nice junior and, an amateur career leading into to playing at Auburn. Um, yeah. I, I gotta ask you, you know, it's funny. I, I just, actually just had Grayson Huff on the podcast, who's a current Auburn Tiger that just won the Patriot All-America. And I, I hate to age you here, but you're coming up on the, the 20th anniversary of your team winning the SEC championship in 2002. What do you remember more about that? Not being in the lineup to win the SEC championship or being in the lineup at the national championship? That's an interesting question. You know, I, I didn't miss a ton of events during my, my time there. Right. Um, but, uh, but I did miss that one, and it was it was uh, obviously bittersweet. Like we 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 won won the tournament. Our guys played great, and and it, it's a memory that that um, you know uh, that that I, I wish I could could have been part of physically. But I was so happy for our guys. We had a really close knit team, um, and, and coach had a tough decision to make. And and I you know I told him I, I you know. I, I didn't necessarily agree with him, but I, I said, you know, I, I support your decision. You know, it's a hundred percent your call because I think I had just finished. Um, I think I had just finished maybe in the top 10, uh, maybe like fifth or sixth or something at the, at our, at our home event. And um, I'd kind of been hurt that, that year. I, I had a, I jammed my SI joint in my hip running stairs in the stadium. I, I was not the most graceful athlete at Harvard University. <laughs> And I and I jammed my hip uh, running down the stairs, um, and I just I really struggled um, that semester. And um, like I said, it's one of the one of the few few events that I missed over my 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 uh, my last couple of years there. But uh, but it was it was obviously special to for our team to win that event, and it was you know very theatrical coming down the stretch. And, and I, I like I said, I would have loved to have been been part of it for sure. But, um, but, you know, we got back and we got to competing. And, and um, I think I, if I remember right, I, uh, I played really good at uh, Georgia State's event. It's kind of a event kind of after conference championship in between conference and, and uh, uh, regionals that year. And I, and I had a chance to win that event. And that was like the, 
you know, that, you know that coming, got you back, yeah. kind of coming down the stretch. I think it, it was with Camilo Vajegas, and uh, I think he ended up beating me by probably probably more than I like to remember. But I do remember that uh, I was at least in the last group with him, and uh, you know, so that that kind of kind of got me, me a little more confident. And um, you know, we we went on had a uh, you know, but a decent regional performance kind of squ- squeaked into uh, the NCAAs that year. We had a really good driving team, and we played Karsten Creek. And Karsten Creek was the hardest driving golf course I have ever seen uh, personally. And fortunately, the wind didn't blow that week. And, and you know, we, we were around the lead for a long time, ended up finishing seventh. And it was a, it was a great way to cap off, off that, um, that junior year for me. Yeah, and the other thing that I kind of, you know, peeked in to see how how basically you finished and how a lot of the guys on your team, I mean, well, Will Claxton was on that team, and, and mm-hmm. you know, it's funny, 2003, 2004, you're basically leading in every single category, whether it's stroke average and rounds under par, and this was really the, the, the strength of your collegiate career, by, by from what I can tell. It, mm-hmm. Is it, and I, I guess it kind of parlays into how you – coach and what you need to realize about college golf is where it takes some time for players to really you know gather some steam and find everything that fits do you remember really how everything came into place that year uh yeah i mean it it was i I was definitely behind the eight ball i I remember getting to auburn and we had a bunch of guys on the team and it was um we were shifting from quarters to semesters and you know, the Title IX stuff was just starting to kind of come out a little bit. And I remember in about the second meeting of the year, um, you know, kind of Coach Griffin came in and said, hey, listen, there's 16 guys on the team. Um, we're signing three guys. We're graduating, you know, uh, two or three guys. And um, there's going to be, I think he said, I can't remember if it's 10 or 12 on the team the next year. Well, you know, when you're the 15th or 16th guy on the on the list, and you hear that conversation, well, you know it's time to kick it in gear if you want to stick around. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. You know, um, I was I was very fortunate that I had a really good relationship with Jason Duffner, who was a senior uh, that year, and Roland Thatcher was you know, was day in day out our best player. So, you know, I, I really kind of connected those guys. And they they took me under their wing, even though that you know I was I was well behind. Um, from a physical standpoint and, and those guys really, they challenged me day in, day out. Um, my, my, I thought I had thick skin coming in there. My, my skin got really thick uh, after my first year in, in dealing with, with those guys. Uh, Cause they're not necessarily the, uh, the kindest bunch, but, um, but they, they definitely helped me from a, uh, you just, like I said earlier, like showing up, having to compete, you know, when I'd make a mistake, you know, they were, you know, they were on me. So it was, it was uh, just a great learning environment if you were open to it. Now, everybody's not open to it. Everybody, you know, is not, you know, okay with, um, you know, the criticism or, or even the competition at times. And for whatever reason, I, I've always been a competitor and I've always um, enjoyed, um, you know, being around people that were better than me. I feel like that's a an opportunity to always learn uh, if you can surround yourself with people that are that can they can do more than you. Um, you know, I don't I don't mind you know being on the come up on the back end of things. Um, so that that environment um, was great for me, and 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 really 
you know, once those guys kind of graduated, because they, you know, Duffner stuck around some, we brought in really good players behind them, like Lee Williams, uh, who was, you know, a Walker Cup guy, uh, Will Claxton, you know, played the PJ Tour for a little while. Uh, Stuart Moore was a great amateur. Um, you know, Jay Mundy was a really good amateur. Um, you know, we just we just had a lot of guys uh, stacked up behind those guys that were that were really into golf. We weren't necessarily the most talented group, but we you know ate, slept, and breathed uh, golf, and we were we were hard after it. You know, pretty much every day. Yeah, and and it's interesting. You know, I, I'm listening to what you're saying about how you know Duffner and Claxton and the other you know Roland Thatcher kind of getting in. You know, basically making sure you have thick skin. And I'm I'm guessing this is more about. You know, it's it's not about hey, you're not hitting it far enough, and you're 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 missing that putt. I'm guessing it's more about things like, you know, hey, you have, uh, you know, you know, the pin is back left, and you just missed it left and short side yourself. I'm guessing things like that, just simple course management and errors that are more mental than physical. I'm guessing those are the kind of things you're talking about. Oh yeah, I mean Duffner's got had such a great way about him. I mean, like you know, he comes across as like a you know kind of a, a super quiet guy, and he is, but by all normal standards, he is very introverted. But he's got the this ability to deliver uh, one liners that are, I mean, when I tell you they sting, they sting, and he's got that goofy little voice, and you know, you hit it, you hit it long left to a back left pin, and you know, he's just walking up, and he just walks past you, and he goes keep doing that it's going to get expensive you know little little things like that that just always stick in you know stick in the back of your mind and um you know just you know you know when you don't say a lot and then yeah. you you say the right thing at the right time it really stands out i'm trying to think back of of players that burst on win something big on the PGA tour and you think, how the hell did that happen? But I'm guessing that's something that you and your teammates probably saw out of him for quite some time. And I'm thinking about him, like, like also, I mean, I think him and Keegan Bradley are pretty much joined at the hip just for, you know, for the for their actually their their rivalry in the PGA Championship, but also similar, right. you know, nobody's nobody knows who Keegan Bradley is coming out of St. John's. I'm guessing fewer. Right. I'm guessing the same amount of people probably knew about Duffner coming out of Auburn. Yeah, um, I mean, if you were in the know, you knew you knew that he was a good player, right? Um, but you probably didn't really have an appreciation of his ball control. I mean, I just remember playing worst ball with him. I mean, and you, you look, I mean, I would hit you know a tee ball in the right, you know, rough, and hit one in the left rough, and I'd have to figure out, you know, it'd take me five minutes to figure out which one was worse. You know, and, and, and he could throw a napkin over his two tee balls and, and, and you know, just just the sheer attrition of playing a game like worst ball uh, with a guy that has that much ball control. Um, I mean, just it, it's a testament to to his, his his true ability. Yeah. You um you leave Auburn, you know, uh, you know, all America honors, uh, academic, all academic honors and turn pro as you know, and most people do if they're playing at a D1 program at that level, they want to give it a shot. You know, you play, um, you know, go to Q school a couple of times and I, I can't not. I mean, you played the Hooters tour and I swear somebody out there needs to grab Ted Potter and Chad Campbell and get a Hooters tour podcast started because the stories that must exist from from that tour are legendary i i know you're not going to let me down here i just know it you got to have at least one story from the hooter store oh well i i, I have several that aren't probably appropriate for this podcast but I, I, i'll 
I'll give I'll give you I'll give you a pretty good one. Okay, uh, good. Um, we were playing. We were playing in. Um, I, I, mean, I can tell you several stories. I, I mean, I met my wife uh, playing professional golf and stuff like that. I won't bore you with that, but but uh, I'll tell you the story about. There was a guy that did the yardage books. Um, there was a guy uh, named uh, Willie Lanier. There's William Lanier, but I call him Willie. Uh, he's from Augusta. He he did the yardage books for the PGA Tour, and he caddies. I can't remember who he's caddying for right now, but uh, he caddies on the PGA Tour. But, you know, his side gig was, you know, him and another guy, uh, Marion Dancer, did the yardage books every week. So they were hand-drawn. And, you know, Monday was a big day because uh, he sold, you know, yardage books to the Monday qualifiers and and uh that was you know pretty good little revenue stream and we had we had played I can't remember where we were playing and um we had driven up to Perdido Bay uh which you know if you've you've traveled at all you know that uh it's just outside of Pensacola in a right on the Florida Alabama line. And there's a famous bar there called uh the Floribama. Well, it was Sunday night. We, had, you know, me and a guy named Brett Bonner, who almost won the, played Auburn. He almost won the uh, bid amateur a couple, you know, a year or so ago. And uh, Jake Reeves, who's a kind of works with a bunch of PJ Tour guys now. And um, us three, you know, we're all staying together with Willie Lanier at Perdido Bay in this in this condo. And um, you know, we had all had. A, decent week made a little cash or whatever so i said boys we got to go i gotta show you the four bama because being a from alabama i'd been there once before sure. um you know so I take the guys out and we have a good time and, and um we come back and and um willie lanier is what i would call a trendsetter he had a uh one of those uh cpap machines for sleep apnea way before they were popular so he had already gone to bed because he's got a a big day you know on monday and um so we decided to sneak in his room and steal his car keys and drive we were staying at the golf course and we drive his his uh i think he had like a 93 or 94 toyota camry that had 200 plus thousand miles on it and we and we pull it up right next to the first tee and we take our white shoe polish uh because you wore classics back then you Uh you had to keep them polished um, yeah, because there's a lot. There's a lot of media out there in the Hooters tour. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. You want you want to look good, so uh, you want to look like you at least get a new pair of shoes every six months or something. Sure. So, um, so we take the white shoe polish and, and we write uh, low Monday qualifier wins. You know, <laughs> 1994, you know, Toyota Camry. You know, with 200 some odd thousand miles on it, and and literally it is pulled up. When I tell you it is on the first tee, it is on the first tee. Okay, got it. And so, um, so you know, we all go back and go to sleep, and um, we, um, you know, Willie gets up the next morning, and he is in a frantic. Well, we what we didn't know is like a year before this, his car was stolen. Uh-huh. Okay, you know, perfect. So, so he he has, um, you know, he has basically a panic attack, and he's absolutely freaking out. And he's running around trying to trying to find the deal or whatever. And, and we're just like, hey, just go to the pro shop and check the check the video or whatever. They, I'm sure they got video out there. And, you know, you'll probably see who got your car. Well, he rolls out there and he finds the car. And um, the guys that are running the Hooters tour or whatever, obviously, um, 
call us in and they're like, Hey, you know, that's, um, <laughs> that was really funny, but, but, but don't do it again. <laughs> Conduct unbecoming, but yeah, that's funny as shit. So that's perfect. Yeah. yeah. Oh man. Yeah. I wish I was doing this podcast when the Hooters tour was around. Cause Oh, oh my gosh. I know. Yeah. There are so many care. I mean, literally I, like, I, I could tell you, I could tell and, and I, I mean, I was as, as tame as a house cat, you know, sure. compared to, to some people and, and the guys I ran with. But uh, that was a definitely an interesting time uh, in my life and in, you know, the low levels of professional golf. Sure, sure. Well, you, you've um, you've turned the page into becoming a, a college golf coach. And as you said, you're an assistant at, at A&M. You spent some time at Old Miss. How did how did you get into it? I mean, I know this is really, I mean, it's such a passion in your life, and from where you started to where you are now with the University of Houston, I know you've you've climbed the ranks and had different experiences. But how did it become, you know, instead of just like, hey, I need a job, as to this is kind of my calling, this is what I want to do. Do you remember maybe when you it the light kind of went off in your in your head and said, okay, th- this really is my passion. Yeah, you know, it was. Uh, I, I would say the one skill that I I, I possess that that has probably been a, a a true asset to me in life in general is 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 I've got a good way of networking, and um, you know, just through um, kind of being at the right place at the right time. I, I actually a good friend of mine that used to work with Titleist, Philip James, uh, encouraged me. He said, "Hey, man, like I, I think you'd be great at, at you know." college coaching and i think you should pursue it you know and and about a week later uh trey jones who is uh, who's been a dear friend of mine from from the day i met him when i was playing college golf at auburn i worked i worked golf camp that he ran and and just has, has always been a you know a, a kind of a guiding light for me in in, in college golf and in, especially in coaching um had a position open and um you know, he, he interviewed me and it was, it was, a, it was, it was good for me. I didn't end up getting the job. Chris Malloy uh, actually ended up getting the job and, um, but it was good for me to kind of reconnect and, and kind of, you know, wrap my mind around it a little bit. Cause I was still trying to play some. And then um, Ernest Ross, who, uh, who was, was really good to me uh, as a junior golfer. I mean, I didn't have the opportunity to play, um, you know, a lot of 18 hole golf courses, even growing up, like, you know, I got to play country club at Jackson, um, you know, maybe when I was, I don't know, maybe 15 or 16, I had just won the, well, I think I was 16. I had just won state junior that summer and, uh, Ernest Ross, uh, and, and a couple of members at country club at Jackson invited me and, you know, a couple of the kids up to play golf. And, um, you know, I, I played there a handful of times and just had a good, you know, a, you know, just a cordial relationship with Ernest. And when the job was open there, um, he hired me and um, just gave me that opportunity. And then I kind of, you know, leapfrogged that into to the deal at A&M and, and um, you know, the rest has been history. I just, I love the, the story of just kind of finding your way. And then also I think it's incredible that you, you win a state junior championship without really playing 18 whole rounds of golf as a kid. I don't think I've ever heard that ever. Yeah, I mean, my when I tell you my um, my story is unique as far as 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 the environment, um, you know. But but I, I wouldn't have traded it. Like it was a great environment for somebody who started late. Yeah. 
Uh, I mean, I wasn't hanging out on the driving range. I mean, I might not have had 18 different holes to play, but I played, you know, there wasn't many days that went by where I didn't play, you know, somewhere between 36 and 54 holes. Um, you know, so, so it was, although it was, um, non-conventional, it was, um, it was, it was a, a great environment. Is it 14 years at Houston or, or nine I think this is my 12th year. 12th and then like. 12th season. Yeah. yeah. So, season. so 12th season and then it's the eighth where you're handling both programs, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we started the women's program here uh, and, and we scaled it up and I don't coach the girls day to day. We've got a, a very awesome staff that does it day to day, but I kind of, you know, consult with them, them on some things. And it, that, that's been a, a, a very cool process to see that, to, to basically start that program um, from scratch uh, at, at the most historic men's program of all time. So, so yeah, that and, was a, uh, yeah, that's probably a whole podcast in itself. Well, I mean, I'm glad you brought it up because, you know, University of Houston, basically since the NCAA, I mean, it's really the first dynasty in the NCAA area. So after, you know, basically for the last, I think about 80 years, you know, Houston is at the top 16 titles and in, in basically a 29 year period. And we can start just at least mentioning, we have to mention Dave Williams, uh, you know, basically for people who don't know, almost a pioneer in, in the collegiate game, you know, right now, or back then it was a lot of just you know, matches, you know, one school versus the other five on five. And it was match play or however many it was, but it was, it was, it was match play. But now we have the five for four and stroke play and then 10, 15, you know, 20 teams at a tournament that really all started with Dave Williams. And I guess one of the things I wanted to ask you about taking the job at Houston is it's unique where I guess every recruit that goes into a collegiate program, they may be looking at you know, what is this, what is this school going to do for me? What is Houston going to do for me? I'm guessing that you need kids to understand what they need to do for Houston because of the legacy. This isn't just, you know, going to school and playing a little golf. This is, this is a big legacy that they're buying into. Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, uh, you know, when you mention a guy like Dave, Dave Williams, like, you know, a lot of people don't realize this. I mean, Dave Williams was, he, he televised golf tournaments in Houston. You could watch college golf in Houston uh, in like the late 1960s, uh, I mean, it, it's yeah. uh, he's really a pioneer as far as um, the game goes. I mean, you know, I mean, this, 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 you know, what we have today is is directly related to um, you know some of the the forward thinking that uh, you know some guys like like Dave Williams and Mike Holder and and um, several other coaches that uh, you know have all come before us. Um, but, but what he accomplished here at the university of Houston is, is, is absolutely remarkable and should be held in the same regard as, as what John Wooden did or what, you know, whoever, you know, Bear Bryant, um, you know, and, and, you know, I'm not a big Alabama guy being, being, uh, I know that must've just, gave you, guy, but, I can't but, believe uh, you just said that. I, I mean, yeah. I can, you want me to edit that out? I don't want to, I don't want you, I mean, no, you, you, leave it you, in. Can, you can leave it, you can leave it in there. I've got, I've got some, some, some people I tolerate that are associated with the university <laughs> of Alabama. Um, but, uh, but yeah, when you look at, you know, guys like Saban and Bear Bryant, what they've done, I mean, Dave Williams should be held in the same regard. And, um, you know, there's obviously, um, uh, you know, a lot's changed in college golf. I mean, the, 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 the there's so much parity now. I mean, um, when you look at the, I mean, even the, you know, the, 
however many years I've been associated with, with the game, I mean, things have changed so much. Um, and it's just a, a testament of just of, of good quality people, you know, thinking forward and, and, and really, you know, putting the game first. How much does it weigh on you? I mean, knowing what the legacy is, the 16 titles in 29 years, I mean, you're down in, in Texas, down, down in Houston, you got, you know, you got Austin and, and College Station north of you, then you got a couple programs in Oklahoma, a little bit further north, LSU is just to the east of you, you have all these programs right around you. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, how, how much does that weigh on you where, you know, you want to get, you want to get that 17th title? Yeah, you know, every, every everything we do from a from a fundraising perspective, from a practice perspective, it all falls under what uh, what we call Project Seventeen. So uh, whether it's recruiting, like I said, it, every aspect of what we do falls under that umbrella. Uh, and Project Seventeen is all about putting us in a position to to uh, to have that chance to win a seventeenth national championship and getting across the finish line. And um, you know, I like I said, I you know. You know, for for the better or the worse, I mean, I've I've never minded a challenge, and um, you know, this landscape is very difficult. I mean, we've got a lot of people that uh, in our state and around our state, uh, whether they're SEC schools, whether they're Big Twelve schools, that are have a high emphasis on playing golf at a at a championship level. You know, and and no matter no matter. Um, you know, how many kids play junior golf or whatever, like there's only so many kids that, that uh, when you're talking about competing at that level that, that are capable. Uh, and so the campaign, the competitive landscape of, the rec- of recruiting is, is brutally difficult. Um, you know, we, we have to find the right kids, you know, uh, there, there, there's no two ways about it. Uh, but it's, it's a, uh, you know, at the, at the end of the day, you, you want, you don't just want a challenge, you want an admirable one. And I think uh, helping this program get back to, to a, a level of conversation at the national level, um, you know, we've, we've been really good at times and we've struggled at times, but it's, it's, there's not a day that goes by that, that, that I don't have a very um, admirable challenge in front of me. What um, I try and make sure that, that listeners, I, I say it all the time, but I'm, I'm very proud to say it that a lot of, parents of juniors listen to this podcast juniors listen to it juniors from all over the world actually whether they're in costa rica or they're in um finland i mean it it blows me away how many juniors are listening and one thing i want to make sure whenever i talk to a collegiate coach get a little bit of insight a little bit of advice for them what do you find is the biggest lesson that collegiate players need to learn as quickly as possible uh there there you know to to me to me you're you're your relationship to challenge and failure is, is the, is the, if you, if you can learn that lesson fast and you can, um, can understand that, that, that failing in something is not, uh, it's not final. Um, and, and what I mean by that, it's, it, it's okay. It's okay to put out a good effort and come up short. Uh, because I think a lot of times, like we're, we're a little too protective, uh, as far as that goes, like, you know, and, and at some level, whether it's a collegiate level or professional level, you're going to put a hell of an effort out and you're going to come up short and your relationship to, you know, to that is, is, is going to determine like your, your ability to move forward. Uh, and sometimes that, that manifests itself in qualifying. Sometimes it manifests itself at you know, having a chance to win a golf tournament. Sometimes it manifests itself as, you know, just making the team as a walk-on. 
um, but your relationship to failure and, and, and challenge, um, you know, will directly determine your, your, your trajectory in life. Cause we're all going to come up short. And, you know, like I said, at times, like, you know, you've got to be, you're going to put it all out there and, and it's going to hurt and it's going to suck. But, um, you know, being and not being okay with failing. I mean, I'm saying like you should pat yourself on the back for failing, right. but ha- having a having a um, a relationship to it to where you can learn from it and and move forward. Well, I'm glad you you laid that out because that is one thing that that probably young people today are just not used to. They're not used to failing, and they're used they want success as quickly as possible and don't know how to deal with failure. So. I'm glad you brought that up. Can you pinpoint what your greatest joy as a coach thus far has been? And obviously you can, you know, go to the national championship that you're part of at Texas A&M, but I'm kind of thinking that maybe there's another moment in, in your coaching career that, you know, maybe doesn't have the, the glitz and glamour of a trophy attached to it. But can you think back to maybe what is maybe the greatest joy you've experienced that maybe a lot of people don't know about? Oh man, that's a, that's a tough one because, you know, I mean, I mean, I, I've, I've been so fortunate. Um, I've been so fortunate, um, uh, in, in this game. Uh, I mean, I've, I've been very successful at times and, and, and won championships and things like that. And, and don't, and don't get me wrong. All those things are great. Um, you know, but, but, you know, looking back on things, I mean, there's, there's obviously I'm, I'm in a, in a interesting position, uh, to, to affect people, uh, in very positive ways and very negative ways. Um, and I've always tried, I've always tried to respect that and, and, and know that, um, know that, uh, I, I'm in that role. And I, and I would say, you know, not, there's probably not one scenario in particular but there's always scenarios that that happen you know uh from time to time when when you know when players kind of come back to you and say hey listen you know i was really struggling with with this or that at that time and and you know you said something to me and i don't know if it's you know was you know if you you know knew what you were doing at the time but you know it, it really changed my outlook and and you know it helped me you know be who i am today and, um, you know, I, I've had that, that conversation, like I said, I have it on a yearly basis, you know, you know, with someone, um, and for me, like those, those are some of the most rewarding things. I mean, like, you know, I, I, I didn't get into this job, uh, you know, to, you know, because it was, you know, glamorous or, or anything like that, but I, I really felt like, you know, it was kind of my calling to, to, to help guys. Cause I, I felt so, uh, I, I benefited so much from this this process. I mean, Mike Mike Griffin gave me an opportunity, and um, and you know, without without him and without Ryan Cabbage and, and and several other people around me, you know, you know, I might be back in Mississippi growing sweet potatoes. So, uh, which is which is a very admirable admirable profession, by the way. Those those guys do uh, do really well, um, but uh, you know this game has been so generous to me and I just felt, you know, drawn to give back. And, um, I, so I, I would have to chalk it up to some of those behind the scene conversations, um, you know, that happen usually, you know, several years after the fact. And, um, you know, like I said earlier, my networking skills and, and, and the way I value relationships are, 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 have been a asset to, uh, 
to me personally and professionally. And um, like I said, that's probably got to be some of the highlights for sure. Yeah, yeah well said. Um, obviously, 2020 is such a unique and frustrating uh, year. Obviously, um, you know, college golf pretty much shutting down across the country around, you know, mid-March. I know a lot of conferences kind of handled it differently, but the end game was golf was over. There was not going to be a national champion. But now you're you're we're getting things started in the spring of 2021, and you know the the one of the biggest tournaments uh, that's of the spring is going to be the All America, which you're hosting down in Houston. And really, this is a tournament like we talked about er- earlier that Dave Williams started, and we're releasing this episode, uh, you know, just a little bit before the beginning of that tournament. And you know, due to, I guess the geographical limitations, so to speak, of, of different conferences and different teams, you really are going to have a, a hell of a, uh, uh, you know, turnout as far as what teams are. Just, it's going to be a very highly ranked tournament. Can you talk a little bit about what you've had to do to prepare to host a tournament during, I guess, the new normal of, of life with COVID? Well, you know, <laughs> it's definitely been interesting. And, you know, you know, and outside of having to change everything every week, then, you know, it hasn't been all that complicated. But, but it, uh, <laughs> it seems like uh, it seems like these things are a moving target at best. And, uh, you know, the fields are, you know, it's like musical chairs at times with the field. And, um, you know, there's there's, you know, a lot of of, of uh, requirements to be able to play as far as the testing and, you know, if you have a team that, you know, has someone to test positive, I mean, then you have to run the contact tracing. So, you know, you could easily have a scenario to where, you know, a 19-team field can can be, you know, 13 or 14 teams. So, you know, we're – what I would say is, is you know, I'm probably more famous in college golf for hosting events. If you host enough events, you realize, you know, the the, the – best skill that you could probably have as someone that hosts events is to be able to hit curveballs. And um, this event will definitely throw some curveballs our way, but we've got a tremendous field. Um, you know, when you look at the All-American back in the day, it was it was one of the premier events, and it will be one of the premier events of, of this spring. Um, we've got, you know, a good crop of Big 12 teams. We've got A&M from the SEC. We've got Louisville coming over from the ACC. We've got, um, you know, ourselves, um, and we've got a lot of really good mid-major teams. I mean, Sam Houston State has got pretty much everybody back, and they're, they've got a really nice program. Uh, Louisiana Monroe has got a really nice group of guys. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's going to be an interesting interesting field, a great opportunity for some of these mid-major schools and, and um, uh, you know, an, an easy event for, for travel for, for a lot of these places. I mean, since Houston, um, you know, you can get to Houston for pretty much anywhere relatively easy. Yeah. And uh, we've got a golf course that's in great shape. Tournament course, Golf Club of Houston, hosted the, uh, hosted the Shell Houston Open and the Houston Open for, for I think, 17 years. Um, and it's going to be a terrific venue for college golf. Uh, we would love to have it on TV, but we got uh, probably the second best option um, coming up. As far as I'm concerned, we we hired a a, a guy that uh, that uh, knows what he's doing as far as 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 college golf and amateur golf goes. As far as creating content, so um, that should be really fun to display and and, and um, you know hopefully grow uh, the fan base. 
Well, I, I appreciate you saying that, and I, I guess this is as good a time as any to, to let listeners know that, uh, gosh, you're you're just – I don't know why you're sucking up. You don't need to do that, Coach. But, yes, I will definitely be at the All-America Invitational doing photography, video work, and interviewing some of these players and, and really looking forward to getting down there to seeing – to seeing this great field and this great tournament um, you mentioned. So thank you for that. And thank you for having me down there. And you mm-hmm. mentioned, um, you know, you mentioned University of Houston, um, you know, just we've, we've talked and I'm going to let you go on this one, but I, I have to ask this one question. There's a lot of great alums that have been through that program. I mean, we can go down the line. I know Freddie had, you know, Freddie Couples had a, had a cup of coffee at the University of Houston back in the, uh, I believe it was the, the early eighties or I know that, um, you know, Elkington was there, and we can kind of go down the line of all the different, you know, Fuzzy Zeller, I mean, just go on and on. But I, I have to ask you, um, there's this other guy that was there that didn't quite make it out on tour. His name's Jim Nance, but he's somehow found a way to make a career uh, in in the golf world. Everything sounds better coming from Jim Nance. You know, if I ever got a phone call where, you know, my car was stolen and my house burned down, I would want Jim Nance to be the one to tell me because it would just sound better from him. What, you know, a lot of players dream about having Jim Nance talk about them, you know, at Augusta. What is, um, what's it like when Jim Nance is calling a golf shot right in front of you as you're trying to take the club back? Like, you know, maybe at Pebble Beach. It's, it's a great, it's a great topic to bring up. I mean, <laughs> I mean, one of the one of the awesome things about my job is I've I've been able to to connect with so many guys that have been so influential in the game. And you know, if I started naming them all, I'd leave somebody out. But it, I mean, I've been so fortunate to 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 have relationships with these guys, and these guys um, really kind of take me in and 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 uh, tell stories and and uh, you know just. So many good, um, so many good stories from 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 Dave Williams and from college golf back in the day. I mean, it's it's that could be a podcast of its own too. I mean, when you when you hear some of the stuff that went on back then, but um, you know, we we had a stretch that you know we were we were doing an annual or about every other year we were going out to Pebble Beach and and having a. Um, you know, kind of a booster outing at, at Jim Nance's place. And, and we'd play Pebble, we'd play Spyglass, and we'd have dinner at Nance's house. And Nance would come out and he would, um, you know, make the call on, um, you know, you know, number seven at Pebble Beach, you know, or you know, come out to Spyglass and make the call on one of the holes for all the, you know, the bo- the boosters. That, oh, that, that made this trip. And it was, you know, there's, you know, there. You, you meet your heroes and oftentimes they don't live up to the expectation you right. have in your head. But let me tell you, Jim Nance exceeds that expectation. So all, all that you're, you're envisioning as far as like the voice and the, his ability, ability to deliver the message, whatever that message might be, um, um, you know, it is, I mean, he is, unbelievable um such a generous man such a thoughtful man his attention to detail uh i mean i can tell you you know we had so one year we went out and it was the first sunday night that he had had off in like 20 years and we were at his house oh wow and so we're in his theater room and we're watching the chiefs and i can't remember 
who I want to say I don't remember who they were playing, uh, but I do remember it was the Chiefs because he was making some comments on on Andy Reid's uh, uh, clock management. But uh, he turns the volume off and oh. calls the game <laughs> without sitting in there. And this is, you know, I mean, he wasn't prepared for it right. or for anything, just kind of impromptu cuts it off. And he wasn't doing it to show off. No, but, no, but but that's what everyone but, wants to see, though. I mean, that's, yeah. I, yeah. And, and when I tell you, like, the hairs on your arm stand up with how much this guy knows, I mean, he is, you know, you can, you can pick out whatever artist that you want, um, you know, in, in any genre. And when I tell you, uh, he's got that that touch, that that ability to deliver a message uh, that is, I mean, it, it's it's astonishing to see. Now, why the hell didn't he get Nance for the All America? I mean, now looking back, don't you think he might have made the wrong decision? Well, you know, he does have <laughs> he does have a calendar that's, uh, that's a little occupied. Oh, I understand. I understand. Um, that's awesome. Um, um, well, I, I appreciate you sharing that story and a lot of the other ones that you shared. And I think it's, um, yeah. but no, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled you're able to share that story about, about Nance. And, uh, uh, I can only imagine, cause I mean, there's, there's video of you hitting a shot at Pebble and, oh, yeah. and he's in, he's right behind you calling it. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm thinking, mm-hmm. how do you pull the club back when you're listening to yeah. that? Well, the first, the first shot that he – we didn't get this one on film, but the first shot he ever did, the video messed up, and I, I lipped out on number seven for a hole-in-one. Oh. And um, <clears throat> so we didn't – we didn't – it's not on um, – it's not on YouTube. Uh, and I've actually got to find the video. Uh, it, it wasn't a good video or whatever, and then everybody was going crazy. So it was – it was <laughs> – a, a little bit jerky. So, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, I'll send you a picture of this picture that I've got. Have you ever been to Pebble Beach? I have not. Um, so it's, uh, no, I've not been there quite yet. So so what I'll tell you about Jim Nance is he knows how to create a moment. Right. So he, the another fundraiser that he would do, he'd basically do two things a year at Pebble. One was our deal. One was um, a deal he called Calling, which was his wine or whatever. But it was a fundraiser for... Um, the Nance Alzheimer's uh, unit here in, in Memphis. And he'd have people from all around. And uh, so this particular year, Arnold Palmer was going to play in it. And he was going to, it was going to be Arnold Palmer's last round of golf at Pebble beach. Oh, wow. So, you know, Jim, you know, curates this whole thing. He hires a, uh, a, um, a, a famous painter from, from the, you know, Carmel area because it's it's full of you know really, um, really great artists and stuff like that. So he hires this this guy to do an oil painting of Arnold Palmer holding out on eighteen. Um, and he's got a red sweat. I mean, like Jim basically dressed him and told him, "Hey, listen, I want you where you the whole deal or whatever." Right. And the the picture turned out unbelievable. Well, then he commissioned the the artist. Um, uh, for a hundred prints and then recommissioned him never to print it again. Oh. So there's a hundred, so there's a hundred prints. Each one of them are signed by the artist and by Arnold Palmer. All right. So he's got one of one hanging in his office. So at our deal, that was, that was the main gift for the calling for our deal. He had, he had two left. 
All right. So there's in his backyard, he's got a replica of number seven. Right. And so there was a professional division and then there was a amateur division. So, you know, the amateurs go or whatever. And one of my guys is, uh, ends up winning the, the picture or whatever. And then they have the professional division. Well, I had no idea what was going on outside. I was inside talking to his assistant. Uh-huh. So I'm walking, I'm walking outside and all, everybody's hit except for me. And uh, Billy Ray Brown had hit it, you know, up there to like two feet. Um, you know, so Billy Ray's like, she starts talking shit. He's like, oh, get Coach up there. He hadn't hit yet. Uh, let's see what he's got. So, um, so you hit two shots or whatever. Well, I hadn't hit a ball or whatever. And I had a glass and a half, two glasses of wine. So I walk up there and I'm looking at it or whatever. And I just ripped this like 56 degree wedge down there. And you play with like a limited flight ball. And I ripped it down there and it lands like two feet like past the hole and backs up and hits the pin and almost goes in. Oh. And I just dropped the club and I walked off. <laughs> walked off. <laughs> oh my so, gosh. so I've got number two of 100 of this print. Oh my gosh. I was just going to ask if this ever went to an auction, that's where I thought you were going with this. I only want to know yeah. what those would go for. There's, there's no telling. I mean, at the yeah. time, at the time, Nance told me it's probably worth thirty thousand uh-huh. dollars. This was before, before Palmer passed away. Sure. Um, so there's no telling. There's no telling what it's, what it's worth. Wow. What a great story. Um, well, I, I can't thank you enough for the time. And uh, again, really, uh, really happy for, for you know, it sounds like University of Houston is really in good hands. I'm, I'm happy that you guys are able to put together this All-America uh, tournament. Glad to, to be there. Really looking forward to getting down there and, and seeing everyone. And uh, we'll definitely do this again. I, I'm, it's been a long time. I'm glad we're able to get you here at the back of the range. And uh, thanks so much. We'll do it again soon. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me all. And there you have it. Special thanks to Coach Jonathan Dismuke from the University of Houston for being my guest here at the back of the range. Sorry I won't be seeing him, the Houston Cougars, and everyone else playing in the All-America Intercollegiate, but I know that everyone will be following along to see how that tournament shakes out. Don't forget, follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Check out thebackoftherange.com for previous episodes and where you can get some merch. And we'll see you again next time here at the back of the range.